I've waited till this time of the year in this series that I'm doing on soul detox to talk about toxic faith. Just between me and you, lest you think that that is just coincidental, it isn't. There is no more carnal season in the entire church year than Christmas. <laughs> now you're all out there just as serious looking as you can be. Did pastor just, this is the holy year. Yeah, uh-huh. It is until you get to fighting over stuff in malls and fussing with people in traffic and spending money you don't have to impress people you don't like that don't like you. You know what I'm talking about? Amen. Knowing you're getting in debt. and Oh, I don't, let me not even go there. Christmas can sometimes be such a horrifically carnal time, and it was never meant to be, and the reason is, is because the wrong aspects of Christmas are being emphasized. It's being commercialized to such a degree that the spiritual reasons that exist behind Christmas are being completely forgotten and overlooked, and that's tragic. So... I'm talking about toxic faith right now because I want to emphasize what is really important. Andrew's very passionate about um, that particular subject, and so I let him speak the first uh, an introductory session into that, which he did last week. And, and by the way, he preached his own message. Those were his thoughts and, and um, made his own notes. But I want to get into that just a little bit deeper today. I'm not going to read the scripture that we've used for a theme this whole year in Ephesians, but we've been talking about elevation, living an elevated life. More recently, in this Soul Detox series, we've been talking about Proverbs 4 and 23, which says, above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it, right? Well, look at this verse now. In Deuteronomy 6, <clears throat> verses 4 and 5, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, and with all, all of your strength. Or the Jews would say, Smai Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Ahud. This is the single greatest commandment of the Bible, according to the Scripture. Given to Moses on Mount Sinai by God. Now, let's flip ahead 1,500 years and see how well the Israel that he was speaking this to has done with this commandment. Luke 18, 9 through 14. And he spake this parable unto certain I love, you got you to gotta catch every phrase of this, man. This is heavy stuff. He spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous. <laughs> That's the first thing right there. And secondly, despised others. Did you see that? Don't know any folk like that, do you? Two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a publican. The Pharisee, I love this, watch this. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. 
<laughs> Think about it. He prayed with himself. <laughs> Some folk, that's all they need is just themselves, and they got plenty of church going on right there. Prayed, and don't, don't even need God. He prayed with himself. Amen. God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are. <clears throat> Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the publican standing afar off would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Let me paraphrase this because we can use some synonyms here. Exalted, elevated, okay? Humbled, lowered. We've been talking about living the elevated life. Looks what, look at what happens if you try to elevate yourself through religion. You get lowered. Look what happens if you lower yourself, the presence of God. He will elevate you. Father, today I pray that you will speak a word to us as I often pray that will be insightful. Help us where we live, the real world that we actually exist in. Lord, help us with the things of our daily lives. I pray that you will speak to us in a way that will be instructive, informative, and even revelational in the sense that your word, which has such enormous creative ability, is capable of doing. Help now to speak a word that will restructure our world and align it with yours in Jesus' name. And everybody said amen. amen. Strangely, religion can get in the way of your spirituality. It can stand in the way of elevation. Certainly did in the case of this Pharisee. He went home humbled. And yet he thought his religion would really help him. Did exactly the opposite. You would think religion would help, but it often stands in the way of a person's relationship with God. So today I want to talk about toxic faith, the bitter fruit of bad religion. And since Andrew introduced it last week, I'll just say part two. Religion can be and usually is detrimental to your spiritual well-being. That's a blanket statement. I'm going to throw it out there and say it with emphasis. I'll even be somewhat emphatic and say religion usually is and nearly always will be harmful to your relationship with God. Yet most religions started in an effort to help man connect with and find God. The problem is reverse engineering. Everybody know what reverse engineering is? I'll explain it. You spend your money here, research, time, investment, you create, invent something, and the next thing you know, somebody else who didn't spend the money, time, and research to create it has stolen your ideas and they're producing it in China or someplace. It's not meant as a slur to Asian people. Simple fact of the matter is 
there are a number of Apple stores in China, and you can see them on the internet. They look exactly like the Apple store, and is it Highlands Village on Westheimer? Exactly. Got the logo, the beautiful buildings, the whole thing. Sell what appear to be genuine Apple products, iPads, minis, iPhones, the whole, the whole thing. Macs, Mac Air, they got it all. Only those are not real and genuine, nor is it an official Apple store. What somebody did is they reversed, they bought an iPhone, they bought an iPad, and they took it to their laboratory and they reverse engineered it. Found out, found out how it was made, got inferior components, made one to look just like it. Sent somebody to where there was a real Apple store, uh, took photos, went back and made a building just like it. And this is what is amazing. <clears throat> the people that work in those Apple stores in China think they're working in a real Apple store. They don't even know that it's fake. And you buy the product and you get it at a discount and it works okay for the first little while and then after a while it isn't working right anymore. Why? Because it was not designed according to the original specifications. The products involved in its manufacture were inferior to those the specs had it first called for. This is the problem now. <clears throat> when I say reverse engineering in religion. You see on the painting in the Sistine Chapel by Michelangelo, you see God reaching down to man, right? And man reaching up to God, knowing already that man's going to be powerless to be able to touch God unless God condescends, but he's struggling, he's trying. That, that's commendable. But all of us know that on your best day, it's going to still require God to step down a few notches to our level. And so we love him because he first loved me. Falling in love with Jesus is the best thing I've ever done. The song goes. And that is true. Better than anything else that's ever happened in my life, coming to know God has been by far the best thing that's ever happened to me. And this was God's intention on Sinai. Calls Moses up as high as Moses can go. And then God condescends, read it in the scripture, came down on the mount and gave Moses these commandments and said, love God. That's the greatest commandment. 1,500 years later, man has reverse engineered the process and saw the commitments and consecrations that come about as a result of a man meeting God and finding something this wonderful, so wonderful that he doesn't want any of this anymore. And he says, man says, okay, this is the formula. If you want to know God, you can't have any of this anymore. And that's not really how it got started. It got started not by Moses obeying these rules and regulations. It got, it got started by God touching Moses to such a degree that Moses didn't see anything going on around him. He didn't want any of this. I've used this illustration before, if you will pardon me. It's like when you don't have someone in your life that loves you and cares for you, and you're a woman and a hunk, walk, hunk, walk like me, walks by, you know, <laughs> and smiles at you and gives you the eye. Of course, I'm married, but I mean, somebody that's not, give you the eye. I mean, you notice that, right? 
Or if you're a guy and some vivacious, beautiful woman comes by and doing all these eye things at you and, and you don't have anybody to love you, that gets your attention, right? But if you ever fall in love with somebody that completely captivates your heart and wins your heart so completely that you don't even see anything going on around you. And on your honeymoon, you're at, it can be an exquisite, luxurious resort with snow-white, powdery beaches. You don't even notice the beaches, the palm trees. You don't notice the birds of paradise flowers. Any of that. You don't, you've only, uh, uh, only have eyes for the one that you're married. Uh, y'all, re- y'all, y'all, y'all do remember those days, don't you? Amen. Come on, you guy, come on, pretend it. At least your wife is watching you right now. Wow, the corner of her eye, she's got her eye on you. You better say, oh yeah, man, that was, that was like yesterday. She's... You know, a guy can walk by and that same woman who before she had someone in her life might have noticed him and his attempt to attract her attention now doesn't even see him. And the same thing is true. A woman can sit at the next table. And the guy who, if he were single and not have and not in a relationship, not married to the most wonderful person in the world, and she starts making eyes at him, he might would notice that. I'm sure he would. He doesn't even see her because he's lost in the beauty of the one that he's with. And this is what happened in the Old Testament when man encountered God, he got lost in the beauty of the one he was with. And reverse engineering now, because man didn't want anything to do with any of the other stuff that were, that before he met him, God was, might have been attracted, attractive to him. Now, 1,500 years later, The Pharisees are saying, don't look at these things and it will help you know God. No, no, it's when you know God, you don't want to look at these things. And so Jesus shocked the Pharisees because they confused rules with righteousness, loving the faith with loving the faithful father and knowing about Christianity with knowing God. They confused all of that. When he told them in Matthew 23, 15, Woe to you, teachers of the law and the Pharisees, you hypocrites! You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. Woo! Boy, you could see the smoke curling from underneath their their collars. What happens is when you reverse engineer and try to find God through a religious formula, you end up with people who become so entranced and enthralled with their formula that they forget about the God that it was originally all about. And boy, let me tell you, some of the meanest folk in the world are in church this Sunday morning. Not here, of course. I'm talking about that other church down the street. Second Baptist, that's where they all ordered. You know, Lakewood, don't tell Joel I said that. Amen. Yeah, I'm, I'm joking. It's a joke. Seriously, don't take me serious. Amen. 
people make religion all about denominations and judging each other rather than knowing God. And boy, if you don't see just the way they do, well, let me just tell you this. You know what the funniest joke, it's been judged, the funniest joke about religion for the last 20 years consecutively, year after year is. I'll tell it to you. Let me, let's see if you think it's funny. This, this is, seriously, they do polls on funniest jokes every year. This is the funniest God joke, religion joke for the last 20 years running every year. A Baptist is walking across a bridge one day when he sees a man standing on the edge about to jump. Quickly, he ran over and said, stop, don't do it. And the man that was about to take his life said, why shouldn't I? And the Baptist said, well, you've so much to live for. And the guy said, like what? And the man said, well, do you believe in God? And the man about to commit suicide said, yes, I do. And his would-be rescuer said, me too. Are you Christian or Jewish? And he said, I'm Christian. And the Baptist said, well, me too. Amen. And so he said, well, are you Catholic or Protestant? And he said, I'm Protestant. And his would-be rescuer said, well, me too. I'm Protestant also. And he said, well, you're Episcopalian or Baptist? And the man about to jump said, I'm Baptist. And he said, well, that's amazing. I am too. And he said, wow, are you Baptist Church of God or Baptist Church of the Lord? And he said, I'm Baptist Church of God. And he said, me too. And he said, are you original Baptist Church of God or are you reformed Baptist Church of God? And he said, I'm reformed Baptist Church of God. He said, that's amazing, so am I. And he said, are you reformed Baptist Church of God, Reformation of 1879? Or reformed Baptist Church of God, Reformation of 1915? And he said, reformed Baptist Church of God of 1915. And his rescuer pushed him and said, die, heretic scum, die. That's what religion will do for you. Amen. Jesus had little mercy on those who put the structure of religion above the priority of knowing God and of having a deep abiding relationship with him. This is why Jesus was so harsh in his condemnation of the Pharisees. They promised relationship, but they only gave the empty soul religion to satisfy his hunger. And here's the tragedy. The greater tragedy is not that people is, is not that people accept religion in place of relationship. The greater tragedy is that after you accept religion, you often stop searching for God. And this is the way it works. Oh, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, some of you may remember, there was actually a weight loss program where they took a powder, you'd buy a powder, and you'd mix water, eight ounces of water with a, a, a few spoons of that. And you drink a glass or two of that and before you ate, 30 minutes before you ate. And when that powder would dissolve in the water and you would drink it, it would swell inside your, 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 your stomach. And the, the way it worked is, yeah, you lost weight. The reason you lost weight is there wasn't any room left for anything else. No real food. And that's the same principle that religion works upon. You take that and it takes away your hunger for God. And this is how bad it had gotten. The Pharisees had reached the point that whenever they brought Jesus to Pilate, they had, their formulas were so important that they actually used the Bible when Pharisee wanted to let Jesus go to condemn Christ to death. And they said in John 19, 7, 
We have a law, and according to that law, he, Jesus, must die because he claimed to be the Son of God. Now, these are the same people that God gave the word to 1,500 years before on Mount Sinai, who now, 15 centuries later, are using the very scripture that he gave them to condemn the manifest Son of God. They're taking the word to condemn the living word. They're taking the word of God to use against the very manifestation of God in the earth. Man, you can be so twisted in religion that you can even condemn God in the process. And trust me, if you can condemn God, the rest of us human beings don't stand much of a chance around you, do we? Amen. No wonder Jesus warned the Pharisees to be, or rather Jesus warned people to beware of the toxins of the leaven of the Pharisees, Luke 12 and verse 1. He also warned of the toxins of the Sadducees, the leaven of the Sadducees, the leaven of Herod, three leavens, that's a different message altogether. They all look good on the outside and they satisfied your hunger, but it was reverse engineered and didn't help you know God. We have often in Christianity believed a different gospel than what we're supposed to believe. And that gospel is a gospel that doesn't connect us to the Lord and that breaks the heart of God. It's been observed by others before. We just wouldn't listen to them. People have often said about the church, you know, we don't like the church. It's Christians, you know, that, that keep us from God. We'd like to know God, but Christians, hmm, they're not much of a testimony for it. Remember Acacio Vieira. We've got about 20 people that are right now in Mozambique and with him in a missions project there this week. They were left last Tuesday. We'll be there through this coming week. Remember to pray for them. And I'm scheduled to join them this week, in fact. But they're in the country of Mozambique doing some missions work there. Left the church, um, last, left from here last week, members of our church, and are there with Jerry uh, Heartless. And when we had Acasio come this past September, you know, you saw how passionate he was. He shared his story. Drug addict, raised in Portugal. Trouble, got into Africa, got involved in some heavy stuff there, ended up in prison. While in prison, God got a hold of his heart. He got converted. And then when he got out and, st and met Christians, he said, man, he told me this personally. He said, Dr. Hurd, he said, I have to tell you, Jesus I loved. Christians, I couldn't stand them at all. Man, have you ever met anybody like that that made you think the same thing? Mahatma Gandhi, the four greatest people that have lived in the past century, four greatest leaders in the past century that, that they tell us that, that have existed would, of course, be Nelson Mandela, who died less than two days ago, would be Winston Churchill, that would be Martin Luther King Jr. and Mahatma Gandhi. Mahatma Gandhi was Hindu, but he was raised in India and then went to practice law in South Africa where he met many Christians. And you know what he had to say? After years of interacting with Christians, he said, I like your Christ. Can't stand your Christians. What is it about us that people can fall in love with him and not love us in the process when they're supposed to be seeing him reflected through us? I have the idea that somehow or other we've gotten ourselves into faith that can be toxic when that is the case.
God is not about religion. He's about relationships. So I want to say that up front. Can somebody say amen? Amen. A few minutes, I'm going to give you some ways to identify faith that is toxic. Relationship is what both man and God seek for. Remember again, Sistine Chapel, Michelangelo, God reaching down to man, man struggling to reach up to God, not quite being able to connect until God comes down. It's what he did on Mount Sinai. It's what he did in the the incarnation of Jesus Christ. It's what he did in the upper room. It's always God coming down. It's relationship. Now, the fact that God comes down tells me that God wants relationship. And there again, that's why those songs they sang a moment ago are so impacting. Oh, how I love Jesus because he first loved me. Had he not loved me and wanted to be in relationship with me and you, we would have been powerless to do anything about the need within us to know him. Anything that offers to help you connect with him but offers you religion instead of true relationship is going to be toxic at the end of the day. Now, we've been studying Jacob. Now, watch how this works in this series. I'm not going to go back and preach all of this about Jacob. Let me just remind you that many of us come to God initially not because we love him. He comes to us out of love. We often go to him for different reasons. Now, that's just a flat-out, straight-up, honest, transparent assessment. We oftentimes come to him because we have problems. So let me give you a four-letter word that is behind very many conversions. It's fear, F-E-A-R. Noah moved with fear to the building of an ark and the saving of his family. I used to be an evangelist. I could preach messages in those days, preached a lot about the end of time and prophecy. Look, I've seen people moved by fear. And the truth of the matter is, there's a compelling reason we respond to fear, motivation. People work twice as hard to keep what they've got than they will to get something they don't have. Fear will move you when nothing else will. Sometimes it's not even fear of eternity. Sometimes it's not fear of missing the rapture or dying with cancer. Sometimes it's fear because we just got a bad diagnosis from the doctor. Sometimes it's fear because we were just slapped with divorce papers and we have an uncertain future. Sometimes it's fear because our son is strung out on drugs or our daughter's on the street. Sometimes it's fear because we just lost our job. Our world has come crashing down around us and motivated by fear and powerless to stop what's going on in our lives, we turn to the one that we know can fix it. But let me tell you, you can't continue to serve God if you're going to fear him. Hear what I'm saying. Even the song Amazing Grace acknowledges that. "'Twas grace that brought my heart to fear, but grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Now here's the difference in Jacob and Abraham. Abraham was a friend of God. But look what happens when Jacob encounters God in in Genesis 28. He awakes out of his sleep, and this is what he said. Surely the Lord is in this place. And I knew it not. And he was what? Afraid. Say it. What? How dreadful is this place. 
This is none other but the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. Fear can bring you to God, but it can't sustain a relationship with God. Fear can make you turn to him whenever your life has been wrapped up in everything else. Fear of cancer, fear of dying, fear of an accident, fear of the loss of a marriage, fear of finances drying up. All of that can bring you to God, but it won't keep you in the grace of God. There's only one thing that can keep you, and that's when you fall in love with him. And that's why I like that song, falling in love with Jesus is the best thing that I've ever done. Amen. Jacob struggled his entire life to know God, but never did really know him. This was the bitter fruit of bad religion. And so this is why it's so important that we not seek destinations in our relationship with him. Because when you come to God because you're afraid of dying, what's your real concern? It's to go to heaven. You say, isn't that legitimate? Sure it is. That's a legitimate reason to get saved. You know, E.V. Hill used to preach that message, why I'm saved. And he said, the first reason is I don't want to go to hell. That's a pretty good reason, amen. All things considered, that sounds like a good one to me. But look, it won't keep you saved, amen. And you need to make, you need to make your relationship with God not just about a destination. Other people, watch it. This is the way they posture among religious groups. I'm more spiritual. I know more of God. And so for them, it's I worship better. My, I, I'm all about miracles and the supernatural. Let me tell you right now, a relationship with God is not only not about a destination, neither is it about miracles, neither is it about how loud you shout or how pious you appear. A relationship with God is exactly what it states. It's knowing God. Come on, somebody in the building say amen. Matthew 7, 22 through 23. Listen to what Jesus has to say about all of this super high octane spirituality that people feel so good about on the inside. Listen. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Whoa, Lord, but we healed cancer. We cast out devils. We preached. We did it. We shouted really loud. Amen. I had my praise thing going on, Lord. Yeah, and he's going to say, but I didn't know you. And it was all about relationship. That's what it was about. Amen. So eight warning signs of toxic faith. Toxic faith is dangerous. And here's how you can detect it and avoid the poison of a religious spirit. More importantly, if you've ever been infected, you can take this little test I'm about to administer right now and examine yourself and ask, are any of these characteristics of a religious spirit in me? Number one, a religious spirit views God as cold, harsh, a distant taskmaster rather than an approachable, loving father. That's how religion views God. When we base our relationship with God on our ability to perform our spiritual duties, we're denying the power of grace. God, listen, God doesn't love us because we love our Bibles. 
and read our Bibles. God doesn't love us because we pray. God doesn't love us because you came to church today. God doesn't love you because you witness or give your tithe or gave an offering. God doesn't love you because you're in Bible study on Wednesday night. God doesn't love you because you say grace over your meal. You hear what I'm saying? God loves you because he loves you. Before you ever did any of that, he loved you. Amen. And anything that makes you think that these things cause God to love you is toxic and will oppose true, the development of true intimacy. Number two, a religious spirit places emphasis on doing outward things to show others that God accepts him. It becomes about you showing others, not about knowing him, but it's about performance in the eyes of the people around you. Hello, help me out just a little bit. Jesus told the Pharisees, you pray on street corners. You don't pray on the street, you pray on a street corner where they can see you from this direction and that one and this one and that one. Whatever happened to your closet of prayer? Hello, somebody. This is one reason why in churches that people have lost private weekly devotional, daily devotions, and they substitute Sunday morning worship services. Oh, I'm preaching really well right now. I'm sorry, blood's pouring out. Somebody get some methylate, mercuricomb, or band-aids or something. Amen. We got to stop the hemorrhaging. You cannot replace on Sunday morning what is supposed to happen in a love relationship Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. Amen. And trust me, again, if you ever see him, meet him, you can't help but fall in love with him. I mean, he's so wonderful that once you, you connect with him, you don't even notice the man or the woman walking by anymore. See what I'm, what I'm saying now? It's all, I'm, you can't do this if you come to this church. You don't want to do it once you met God. Hello, somebody. I'm talking about when you fall in love with him, it's no task to go to church on Sunday. Amen. You don't care if the Texans are playing or not. That might be a little unfair to Texans fans who are here today, but I guarantee you if enough of us complain, they'd start playing Sunday afternoon like they're supposed to. Amen. Hello, someone. But the problem is we substitute all this stuff when if you ever meet him, you don't have time for this other stuff anymore until you've taken care of your commitment and time with him. We deceive ourselves into believing that we can win God's approval through a religious dress code, certain spiritual disciplines, particular music styles. You know, no, you do know this. More wars have been fought over religion than anything. And the only reason some of us don't kill each other right now over music styles is it's against the law. I can't stand that rap music in church. And, you know, and, oh my God. And you hear people, y'all remember this? If it touches skin, it's sin. 
I'm serious. You can wear a brooch, but if it touches your skin, it's sin. That's the kind of churches that we were raised in. Like that had anything to do with the price of potatoes in China. We get all of this stuff manufactured and it's man-made. But because we, we're self-disciplined enough to do it, we feel pretty good about ourselves. Number three, a religious spirit develops traditions and formulas to accomplish spiritual goals. We trust in our liturgies, our denominational policies, our man-made programs to obtain results that only knowing God alone can give. Hello. Just because you memorize the formula don't mean that you know what the cake tastes like. Am I in the right house today? Amen. Amen. Number four, a religious spirit becomes joyless, cynical, and hypercritical. This can turn a home or a church completely sour. You ever meet folk that are really religious? They look like if you threw them in a mud puddle, they'd dried up. I got the joy of the Lord in my heart. You look like joy. I'm just dying to get what they have, aren't you? I won't follow them to the church on Sunday morning so I can see where the secret is at. You really think that's what's happening? No, it isn't. Amen. Wherever true joy and true love are expressed, this becomes a threat to those who are consumed by the spirit of religion that makes them look like they've been eating lemons all day long instead of lemonade, you know. A religious spirit becomes prideful and isolated, thinking that his, his righteousness is special and that he cannot associate with other believers who have different standards. There you go. Die, heretic scum. You know, you even spend your time fighting your fellow Christians and the devil's over in the corner somewhere laughing, said, I don't even have to get involved in this. They're going to kill each other off. Amen. You see where I'm talking about? Churches that allow these attitudes become elitist and dangerously vulnerable to deception or cult-like practices. You need to know this. Amen. From time to time, we've had at CT, little groups spring up, think they could do it better and better, or better, bigger and brighter and faster and with more pizzazz than anybody else. And I've had to take people from time to time and say, wait a minute, what are you communicating? Well, we're just really passionate about God. I said, that's not what you're communicating. You're communicating that you're passionate about people thinking you're passionate about God. Amen. If you're passionate about him, you don't have to get everybody's approval and look superior to everybody. You know what I mean? And I'm not knocking anyone's, anyone's hunger for God, but I'm telling you that when you see all this hypercritical stuff, this pride and, and so forth, it's, it's, that's not good. Because the sixth indication of a toxic faith system is that it develops a harsh judgmental attitude towards sinners. Not just toward the, the people who are saved that don't see eye to eye with you on everything. But you actually begin to judge sinners. You don't want to be around them. Amen. This is why people who have this spirit never win anybody to God. Oh, Jesus was a friend of publicans and sinners, but you can't be because you're too holy. 
Amen. The truth of the matter is, is that people who struggle with this are often struggling with habits in their own heart that they cannot admit to anyone. Amen. Religious people rarely interact with non-believers because they can't, they don't want their own superior morals to be tainted by them. Number seven. Hey, have I made everybody mad, mad yet? <laughs> Hang on, I got two more to go. Amen. A religious spirit rejects progressive revelation and refuses to embrace change. Like the guy on the bridge, you know, I'm from the Reformed Church 1875 or whatever. Like the older it is, the better it is. You feel that way about cars too? Food? Clothes? And why some of you still wearing leisure suits and they've been out since the 70s? We think it's holy because somebody 200 years ago, 300 years ago, finally got insight into a verse. And, you know, we talk about there's no more revelation. Yeah, there is. It's not that God is giving a new, a new Bible. That's not what he's doing. He's just giving you revelation to understand the old one. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? I keep thinking of Martin Luther, his famous declaration Thee just shall live by faith. Six words. You know when he got that revelation? Remember that was in the Old Testament and Paul recorded it also in Romans. Okay, and then hundreds and hundreds of years later, Martin Luther gets revelation on that word, whoa! And those six letters, those six words sparked the Reformation and changed the world. But they had had it the whole time. They just didn't have revelation as to what it meant. Wasn't that God was giving a new word or a new Bible? Hello, somebody. Our problem isn't that we need a new one. We need to understand the old one we've got right now. That, that's, amen. Forgive me if that seems just to be a little harsh and, and strong. But look, I don't pretend to understand all of this book. I can read one chapter every day, the same chapter every day for the rest of my life and never exhaust all of its meaning because God's word is so full, it is so powerful, it is so transformative, it is so pregnant with meaning that you cannot absorb it all. Amen. But if you have a religious spirit, any new understanding of an old verse becomes threatening to you. Amen. And when religious groups refuse to shift with God's new directives, they become old wineskins and God must find more flexible vessels that are willing to implement his plan for humanity. Amen. Number eight, a religious spirit persecutes those who disagree with his self-righteous views and become angry whenever the message of grace threatens to undermine his religiosity. Because see, you see, whenever the message of grace is preached, it's calling him out. You, you, you get that, don't you? It's exposing him. Is what it's, that's why the Pharisees hated Christ. 
It wasn't that Jesus came on a campaign against Pharisees. He came on a campaign to help man know God. But in helping man know God, guess what happened? It exposed the Pharisees for their hypocrisy. It's kind of like the treasury department. They tell me, y'all seen these new $100 bills? Good, y'all bring me one. I'd like to see what it looks like. Amen. (laughs) You're just making sure you're still listening, okay? Okay, the point I'm making here is the treasury department agents, I've known a number of them. You know what they tell me? They never study counterfeit money. Never study counterfeit money. You know why? Because they're taught that if you want to recognize something counterfeit, the way you do it is becoming so well acquainted with what is genuine that what is counterfeit is immediately seen to be inferior. And that's what happened when Jesus came and started preaching true relationship. Guess what? The counterfeit was suddenly seen for what it actually was. Now then, quickly, as I'm concluding, just a couple of moments. If you succumb to a religious spirit, know this, that it condemns you to live a life that is empty and unfulfilled. Your greatest need is to know God. That's greater than your hunger for food, greater than your hunger for water, than your body's need to breathe oxygenated air. It's greater than your need for sleep at night. Your greatest need is to know God. You're incomplete until you know him. Amen. You don't have joy until you know him. And your life will be unfulfilled. You were made to know God and be in relationship with him. And if there's anything that church ought to be about, It ought to be about helping someone find Jesus. Amen. But know this, that a religious spirit is also not fruitful. It isn't attractive to others. We think it is because we think we look good, you know, measuring up to all the rules and regs and everything else. But it isn't attractive to others because others know that they struggle and they have weaknesses and what they're looking for is somehow to find significance in their life that means more to them than just measuring up to a few rules. And the greatest tragedy about all of this is that Jesus is the most precious and beautiful thing that you will ever find in your entire life. Once you meet him, trust me when I tell you, nothing else satisfies anymore. And when I see people that are caught up and enamored of all of the stuff in this world, all I'm, I, I, I can't throw stones. I've been there. Different things have meant a lot to me. But once you meet him, all of this other stuff fades into the background. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. When, you, when people see him in you, They want what you have. But have you ever noticed that religious spirits are never fruitful? They don't win anybody to God. They usually don't even save their own children. I'm serious. Usually their own children end up abandoning the church because they they can't accept a faith that they understand is not based in relationship. And so closing characteristics of healthy faith. Number one, it's focused on God. Don't want to be about anything 
that's religious, that's not about God. Don't want to be connected with a church that's not about God. Amen. And if I can say this in all kindness, thank God for every program. Thank God for every class. Thank God for every instructional group. Thank God for every group that teaches life skills. But at the end of the day, church needs to be about God. Amen. Number two, healthy faith is growing. You need to be further down the road next year at this time than you are right now. That's how you measure if your faith is healthy. Number three, healthy faith is respectful. You don't go around like the Pharisee, Lord, I thank you. I'm not like that guy standing over there. That's not respectful. Can I hear somebody say amen? You can look at, forgive me, I'm going to just be plain. You can look at a Hindu, a Muslim. You can look at a Buddhist and see their devotion and know that stems from a hunger to know God. You don't agree with their pursuit. And what you say is, I've got better revelation. I'm happy to share. But you don't disrespect the person. Amen. I've often said that if we could use the same common sense in the church that we use in selling clothes, that our churches could not be built fast enough to house the people that would come to them. By that I mean you walk into a clothing store. You walk in and some guy's got his nose so far up in the air, if it rains, he's going to strangle to death, you know? (laughs) You walk in, hey, how are you? And you know, what you doing it just like that? I wouldn't be seen like that. And you got your leisure suit on and all that, like I said a while ago. Your bell-bottom jeans, you know, and all that. And he's got his, that's, he's not going to sell you anything. I tell you what you're going to do. You're going to walk out if you don't first hit him and then walk out. You know what I mean? But if when you walk in, he says, hello, how are you? Welcome to my store. I can tell by the way you're dressed. You're a man of, in, of discriminating taste and character. <laughs> oh, I mean, lay it on thick, you know, real, real thick. Amen. And before you're done, you're going to find out we're the store you're going to be enjoying shopping in for the rest of your life here in Houston. Amen. Yeah, yeah. Somebody like that, he can sell me something. But a church, somebody comes in, oh, I wouldn't be caught dead believing what you believe. And we, we use exactly this, the opposite of the same commonsensical techniques we would use to help something be desirable to anyone in any other industry. Church, we leave our common sense in the lobby out the hall, in front. You know, there ought to be a sign in some churches, leave your brain at the door when you come in. I'm not being ugly. Number four, free to serve. That's a characteristic of healthy faith. You feel free to serve. If you want to be involved, you can. Number five, vulnerable. You don't have to hide your stuff. Number six, uh, you, or number, seven, or, or number uh, five, self-worth. One of the things that a real relationship with God will do is he will build your self-worth. Amen. Not tear it down. Oh, come on. Somebody help me today. Okay, moving on. Trusting. A a healthy faith is trusting. I want to tell you the one thing I've learned about God through these years. One thing I've learned about God. You can trust him. 
Healthy faith is relationship-oriented. Number eight, nine, healthy faith is personal. It's between you and God. Number 10, healthy faith is balanced. It's not lopsided. You ever have a tire? Your car go low and you're going down the street and it's whoop, 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 on one side leaning over like this? Or have somebody get in it that's much bigger than you and I have a great joke. No, I'm going to wait till I'm, I better wait. It's Christmas. I'm going to be good. December. Healthy faith is non-defensive. Amen. Healthy faith is reality is non-judgmental. You don't have to defend your faith. Let me tell you. And and you don't worry about judging others even if they judge you. I've got a letter on my desk right now from someone who wrote that I've, I've met at a church 20 some odd years ago and they're writing to know do I still preach the old time truth (laughs) yes I do I just don't preach some of the other stuff that wasn't truth even then amen but I still preach the Bible in fact I I, I live long enough to figure out I'll spend the rest of my life won't even finish preaching all that's already in here come on help me out I'm some of y'all a little worried right now about where I'm going with this. Amen. And look, I've got, from time to time, you can put anything on, 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 on the internet. People going to say bad things about you, about CT. I've had to deal with situations here where I've had to refuse people license for ministry, and they've gone on the internet and said a bunch of bad things about the church and everything. And, and I've been cussed out by, by people that use words I didn't even know existed. <laughs> You know, they've, they've increased my vocabulary. If you, if you want to be defensive and defend all that, I just won't tell you that you're, it's not going to help. It's, don't be judgmental. Healthy faith is reality-based. It's based in the here and now. Live your life in a practical way. This is what Paul said, that we should live our lives in such a way that we live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Not in 1800 in this present world. Live for God today. Amen. Healthy faith enables you to embrace embrace your emotions. Amen. Doesn't deny them and make you live in denial. Healthy faith is able to embrace your humanity and recognize that though you're not perfect, he loved you anyway. I've often asked this question during the years when people come to me troubled with their own their own life and lack of perfection. I'd say, did, when did he love you? And they said, well, the Bible says that God loved me before I ever knew him. I said, that's right. I said, if he loved you before you knew him, what happened between then and now? Well, I got saved. And I said, well, what happened since you got saved? Or, I mean, in getting saved, why would he, if he loved you before you got saved, why would he not love you right now? Think about it. You weren't even trying then. If he loved you before you were even trying, why wouldn't he love you now? And that brings me to my conclusion. Number 16, characteristic of healthy faith is that it is loving. I want you to understand that. The old song, makes me love everybody, really is the truth. 
Amen. Stand with me if you would. Musicians, if you'll help me. Life application points in concluding. You don't have to live with a bitter fruit of bad religion. You don't. If the toxins of religion have contaminated your walk with God, ask him to pour a fresh understanding of his grace into your barren spirit and then expect his new life to flow through you. Amen. How do you you apply what we're talking about right now? First of all, if you're one of those that's going to church, remember the old, what was, who was it? Which, Which cigarette brand was it? Smoke, if you're smoking more and enjoying it less. Do you all remember that old commercial from years ago? It was one of them. It said, if you're smoking more and enjoy it less, and it recommended some brand. I just want to tell you, if you're going to church more and enjoying it less, that that's not what God wanted. God wanted you to be wrapped up in him so that he is the joy and delight of your heart. Falling in love with Jesus really is the best thing I've ever done. And so... If your experience is not rewarding and fulfilling, you don't have to live that way anymore. Ask God to help you to know him. And then, point number three, seek to know God. It's supposed to be about pursuing him and hungering for him anyway. Why don't we keep it that way this Christmas? It's not about going to malls. It's not about fighting and traffic, not about giving gifts, not about spending money. It's about God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Spend the rest of your life trying to show others how amazing God is.